I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm very pleased today to be joined by Loisos Heracules, who is Chair of Strategy and Organization at Warwick Business School and also a fellow at the Said Business School in Oxford. We probably know all know him for his excellent textbooks on strategy, but he's just published a very interesting new book called Janus Strategy, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Congratulations on the book, Loisos, and welcome. Thank you, Martin. Happy to be here. So I must kick off by asking about the very curious title. Janus is the Roman canine dog with two heads. Why, why the title and what's the core idea of Janus' strategy? Janus is the Roman god who faces in two or more opposing directions. And the idea is that organizations could accomplish strategies that seek to reach competing goals. And in this sense, challenge our traditional conceptions of strategy, especially the idea that we need a single generic strategy. Well, that uh, does go against the orthodoxy, doesn't it? I remember being taught that Michael Porter, the uh, grandfather of uh, business strategy, said that you can't be stuck in the middle. You have to make clear choices between, in his case, cost leadership and differentiation. So you're saying actually embracing both sides of a paradox or multiple positions or competing ideas is valuable in some way? Yes. So empirically speaking, there are a select group of organizations that have managed to transcend these kinds of categories and have studied these organizations and tried to distill what they do differently that enables them to to accomplish this. Of course, this is uh, very similar in some ways to the now popular idea, at least in theory, if not in practice, because it's rather hard to do, of strategic ambidexterity, embracing exploration and exploitation at the same time. So I wanted to ask you, what is the difference between Janus strategy and ambidexterity? So the key difference is that ambidexterity is a capability that's intended to support a strategy or a game plan. In Janus strategy, I look at more broadly the whole game plan, and I have in mind a strategic alignment model where we have strategy supported by capabilities and supported under that by organizational choices. I see. So it's not just the choices, it's the the actions, the mentality. You're looking at the topic holistically. Yes. So in Ambidextrity, we know that there are four approaches to achieve it. And we've both written about those approaches. What I'm trying to do here is to look at how Ambidextrity could enable a strategy, a game plan that enables the company to win. The second difference is that beyond those four approaches to accomplish ambidexterity, I look at many other relevant things like making technology investments with dual goals, having leaders who think in a Janusian way, having agility. And I've identified six principles that I believe can enable a company to accomplish this strategy. We can go into those in a minute, actually. But just before that, I want to. Uh ask you about synergy. So you make the claim in the book that the general strategy is not just about balancing competing objectives, but actually obtaining synergy between them. So you don't just exploit and explore, but you have each in a mutually reinforcing manner. How is that possible? Because if you take, for instance, execution and conception and exploration and exploitation or any other pair of opposites in strategy, they involve rather different actions, rather different thinking. Where where does the synergy come from? The synergy comes from 
partly from reframing the problem, partly from novel technological capabilities that we have via artificial intelligence, for example, and partly via new types of business models that we have that involve not simply outsourcing, but more like virtual working, more like flood organizations that are nevertheless global and have global impact with very little use of resources. I recall, for example, visiting the Wikimedia offices in San Francisco. This is a top five global website with a great impact on the world, yet can operate with a a shoestring budget. And it's the idea that these new uses of technology, these new organizational forms can be so lean and so agile that exploiting and exploring do not require a paradox or a contradiction in the commitment of resources. You are, you're able to exploit without massively committing resources. Is that the idea? The idea is that a lot of paradoxes are semantic based on words rather than applied or practical. And once you think about the problem in a different way, you could find solutions that push forward both efficiency and quality. For example, one company in the book Apple that we all know, they use variations of the same operating model on all of their types of devices. The iOS, they're using the laptop, they use a stripped down version for the iPad and a stripped down version for the iPhone. Any investments that they make to perfect, develop that operating system, both more efficient because the average cost is spread out across different devices, but also enable interoperability, which is better for customer service. And the third thing they do is they strengthen the ecosystem, which is strategically an enhancement of their bargaining power with the market and with the customer. So the same action of investing and perfecting an operating system has multiple effects Uh, that are both to do with efficiency, i.e. cost reduction, and the customer experience at the same time. Now, conventionally, those two things have been competing. We were taught strategy in the Porter way, which, which was valid and it still is in many situations, but we were taught that higher levels of service are more expensive, higher level of quality is more expensive. And if you want to differentiate you will have higher costs. But empirically, we don't see that in this select group of organizations that have found ways to transcend it. So let me explore that a little more, because part of what you're saying is about actions which uh, break the paradox. But also I hear you saying that the appearance of a paradox may be somewhat semantic, maybe somewhat artificial in the first place. And so if we look at the philosophical underpinnings of this idea, of course, we have the work of uh, Rothenberg, who looked at how Nobel Prize winner's minds work. He had the principle of, uh, I think he called it the Januzian process or the principle of complementarity. And then we have Eastern philosophies like yin yang. Tell us about how we've fallen into the trap, if you like, of seeing things in binary terms and how we see the whole again and remove the illusion of the paradoxes which prevent us from co optimizing for different goals. We need both ways of seeing and both ways of thinking. And The binary, either or, formal logic way of looking at things has served us very well. 
That's how we develop the computer, for example. That's how we can solve operational problems. That's how we can optimize. But it's not enough. So we were taught in the Western tradition this epistemology of formal logic. This is great for stability, for reliability, for ongoing maintenance of organizations. And bureaucracy and routines are more or less based on such a logic. But at some point, we need to reframe, we need to rethink. If we think of an ecological metaphor, without variation, there's no selection of new traits and capabilities, there's no retention. So without variation, without diversity, the population atrophies and dies and perishes when the external environment changes and competing populations, and in this case, organizations are better adapted or they even shape the environment. The population or organization where diversity is lacking will perish. So we fell into the trap partly because this kind of thinking, the linear formal logic is useful but it's not enough. Presumably, especially in complex, emergent or dynamic situations. Yes. I mean, one could argue that even in dynamic situations, if the variations and challenges of the environment is something that was encountered before, then formal logic and habit and routine may be enough. The problem arises when novel challenges are being encountered So, for example, one of the organizations I look at in the book is NASA, and the greatest challenge at the moment is to enable human trips to Mars. We already have probes that went to Mars, but the challenge is that a human trip would take about two years, about nine months each way, and waiting there about six months for the planets to align again, for the craft to be able to come back. And when it's a human trip to Mars, you have all sorts of challenges that have have not been encountered before, like the effects of radiation on the human body, especially with long-term exposure in space, the atrophying of muscles and the eyes and even effects of space on cognitive abilities. A lot of those things we don't know much about. And NASA cannot accomplish that on their own. And that is why the agency has transitioned to what we can call the network model. That's why they draw from collective intelligence to be able to solve intractable problems. And if we look at this in the 1960s, that was a very different paradigm. So the open paradigm, the connection to Jana's strategy is embracing multiple perspectives, sometimes competing perspectives simultaneously. Is that the connection? Yes. And also the second connection is the principle of agility. And what NASA has done is strategic agility, changing business models at least three times from its inception in the 1960s. So let's go into these uh, principles because that's where the rubber meets the road, as they say. And maybe I just list them and then maybe you could, rather than pick them off one by one, if we could maybe pick a couple of the excellent examples in your book and show how multiple principles apply, that would bring it to life for people. Um, So you've got the principle of um, uh, not aligning, but embracing paradox. Don't align with a single position, but embrace paradox. Your second principle is be a general strategist. Your third principle is make what you're calling dual strategic moves. Your fourth principle is 
you use technology to both exploit and explore. Your fifth one is design agile organizations. And your fifth one is leveraging networks that you just said something about. So maybe if you could pick some of the examples in your book and show us what these things, these principles look like in practice. So let's begin with align but embrace paradox. So paradox is intended to be an antidote to the routine that comes with tight alignment. The idea is that alignment gives efficiency, standardization, predictability, reliability, but that at different points, we need to rethink, we need to entertain contrary positions as an antidote to such alignment. So one example that I give in the book is Singapore Airlines, and I discuss the four paradoxes with which they organize this being cost-effective service excellence or delivering high-level service with a comparatively very low cost, paradoxical proposition. The second one is simultaneous decentralized and centralized innovation. That is, they have a central innovation department, but then every single part of Singapore Airlines knows that innovation is part of their mission. The third one is being a follower and a leader at the same time in service development. So they follow in areas that the customer will not see or experience directly, such as software on allocation of flight crews or pricing software. They follow, they don't develop customized ones, but they are a leader in service development where the customer will experience it. So the food and drink on the flights, they have exceptional cuisine, they have exceptional wines, they have exceptional training of their staff. So they follow and lead at the same time, depending on whether the customer will experience that or not. And the final one is employing standardization and personalization in service interactions. Very interesting, because it seems to me that you're referring not just to mixed actions, but even mixed goals. Maybe if we can pick another one, dual strategic moves. What, what do you mean by that? Any strategic move could have dual objectives, such as alliances, investments, restructuring. And the dual objectives would depend exactly on what the strategy is. Maybe I'll continue briefly with the Singapore Airlines example. They train their cabin crew for twice as long as the industry average. That incurs higher costs initially, but in the longer term, it also ensures higher levels of service, cultural values of their staff are all about the customer and commitment to this service. It also means that they can sustain higher pricing power and customer loyalty. Another example is Apple. If we look at the acquisitions pattern of Apple, they make many bite-sized acquisitions, one to three billion, which for Apple's size, they're small. And they buy these young companies in upcoming domains to gain the technology they need in healthcare, artificial intelligence, mapping, virtual reality. By doing that, Apple buys technology needs faster and cheaper than developing it themselves. But at the same time, they power their innovation. And this is a, a dual objective. Interesting. So it's a sort of Marie Antoinette strategy of having your cake and eating it with respect to multiple strategic objectives in a way then. 
Yes, I, I would say that. I mean, if we look at how much Apple spends on R&D, it's 5% of revenues, and that is much, much lower than almost any of its competitors that are between 8 to 15%. And you might say, how do they do that and, and be ranked number one or two in innovation in the world? Well, how they do that is, is partly what I've described. They buy some of their innovation cheaply, they buy strategically, but also they focus their innovation in a single building in Silicon Valley, when a lot of the advice on innovation is spread it around the world so you can learn from different people. Well, they don't do that. They do it the most efficient, cheapest way, but in a way that generates amazing innovations. Can we measure whether a company is doing general strategy or not? So I think the idea of paradoxical thinking is clear, but if I were to give you the accounts of a company, could you point to some numbers which showed me whether one was doing it or not? The numbers will show us if the company has accomplished competing goals, but they won't tell us how. So for example, in the book, I have the metrics of this Indian hospital chain, Narayana Health, and we see that they do open heart surgery for 2000 US dollars. Their goal is to reduce the cost to 800 US in a few years, whereas there are competitors in India do it for about $8,000, four times as much, and U.S. hospitals for 60 times as much, at about 120000 If we look at the metrics of quality, they are similar or better. The 30-day mortality rate for open-heart surgery, specifically coronary bypass graft surgery, is 1.4% mortality rate in 30 days in Narayana Health, 1.9% in America. So you have less chance of dying if you do it for $2,000 versus if you pay $120,000. So metrics like this show us that something special is happening, but they don't show us how. So I can see a connection here to the balanced scorecard idea. If we have uh, competing objectives and we measure balance as opposed to maximization, because a lot of companies are committed to a goal of maximizing shareholder value and think about the driver tree to do that. Here, it seems to me it's all about embracing competing goals and achieving a balanced result. Yes. And could I also say beyond balance? Because semantically, if we think of a weighing scale, a balance means both things are at a similar level. And if you push down on one aspect of, on one part of the scale, the other part will rise. What we are finding in these companies and in general strategy is that if we think of the tide, the whole tide rises, both goals are better than in competing organizations. A contrast between three ideas then, it's maximization, balance, but you're stressing not that, you're stressing breaking compromises as it were. Yes, and raising the bar on competing indicators on all of them. So by maximizing one, you don't necessarily reduce the other. You can maximize both. And we can call that synergy, which is the, the idea we discussed earlier. Supposing that I'm a CEO and I'm attracted to your idea and find your examples convincing, and I'm wondering where to start. I'm running a fairly traditional company that is maybe an excellent company, but perhaps a little bit too biased towards efficiency and maximization of current results and looking 
or to strike more of a balance with, uh, with growth and innovation. What are some of the pivotal measures that I could take which uh, change the equation and push me towards a sort of Genusian strategy? So one aspect is the mindset, and this is not a tool. It's more of a habit of thinking. I would start trying to understand a bit how other organizations do it, and I would start through the habit of looking at issues in a way that does not break the problem up into either or. So that takes a bit of time to develop the mindset. But to get a bit more analytical, one would start by thinking, what's the level of the corporation at which I want to implement some of these ideas? Would they be at the corporate level, in a division, department? Then I would try and think about what would be the goals, the competing goals that I want to optimize. If we think of the corporate level, is it, for example, global standardization? versus local customization at the divisional level? Is it high quality or low cost? If it's at the level of the R&D function, is it innovation outputs versus input costs? So clarify the competing goals. And then I would think of the how, how this could be done. And definitely ambidexterity approaches could be helpful. The established ways or temporal ambidexterity or developing a, a subsidiary that's separated from the main business, all of that could be helpful. But I would also be thinking about uh, the six principles that I talk about in the book, such as making dual strategic moves. So are there moves I could make, so technology investments or acquisitions or certain restructuring that would accomplish both objectives that I want to accomplish? I would start thinking of business networks and how I could leverage them. Are there things I could learn? Could I be involved in networks where I can learn both about efficiency and gain new technologies more cheaply? I would start thinking about the alignment of the organization. We may be aligned, but is there revitalization, revitalized thinking anywhere in the organization? Or is it more routine and bureaucratic? You know, as I started with talking about a mindset, I would be thinking about myself and others as leaders. How do I think? How do others think? Are there people in the organization who are already pushing for new ways? Those are already Janus strategists because they look at the present and the future. They believe in the mission and in the book, I, I talk about the pirates at, at NASA who developed a new mission control in the context of resistance from their colleagues who didn't want to change the way they did things. So those middle-level engineers were general strategists because they saw what was coming. They saw that the existing Apollo mission control wouldn't be able to cope with the demands of the shuttle and the space station. So unfortunately, we're out of time on this fascinating subject, but I just want to ask you, lastly, what are you working on next? So you finished Janusian strategy. What's the next project or the next book? I feel like there's more that could be said for leaders who want to be Janus strategists. I do have some discussion in a final chapter that gives some clues, but I think there's a lot more to be said about Janus strategists, and I may be looking at that next. That sounds like a good way to go. So we've been talking to Loisos Heraklias, Professor of Strategy at Warwick University and Oxford University, about his new book, 
Janus Strategy, which has just come out, uh, published by Amazon. And yes, Amazon is now a publisher as well as a, a distributor. An excellent read, which I strongly recommend. So thank you very much for joining us, Loisos. Thank you, Martin. Thank you.